Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Mark Smith. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Today on the show is Mark Smith, and Mark is the award-winning author of the Winter Trilogy of novels. Set in a devastated future Australia, the Winter Trilogy highlights the resourcefulness and heart of its young protagonists. Mark's joining us today with his new novel, If Not Us... Also highlighting just an incredible, like the depth of YA and incredible young protagonists. The beautiful coastal town of Shelbourne is full of contradictions. For 17-year-old Hess, it's the only home he knows. Hess lives for the waves that break off the myriad breaks and reefs along the coast. Hess works at the local surf shop and he doesn't need much else. But just outside the town is the Hadron Open Cup mine and power station. Hadron employs most of the town and they fund all the local sports teams in the surf club. Hess hadn't given much thought to the power station and what it's putting into the air. His mum's a nurse though and she knows that there's more than the usual amount of respiratory disease in the local area. Imogen's also a part of the local climate action group and Hess is about to learn firsthand the dangers to his beloved coast. Join me as we discover Mark Smith's If Not Us. G'day Andrew G'day Mark, how are you? Good Welcome to the show, welcome back to the show Thanks very much Andrew It is terrific, I, I've loved this book We're outside, outside your usual I'm going, to, I'm going to take us to the beautiful coastal town of Shelbourne Where the town really has two faces For 17 year old Hess, it's home He lives for the waves that break off the myriad banks and reefs along the coast just out t- outside of town proper, though, and employing a significant proportion of the town's residents is the Hadron Mine and Power Station. Now, Hess hasn't given much thought to the power station and what it's putting in the air. But there's a new exchange student in town, and he's focused on the bigger waves, but he is about to realise that the pristine landscape he loves is under threat. I mean, I guess I've got to start, Mark. It must be nice to be moving away from a post-apocalyptic world to a just a 30 seconds to midnight pre-apocalyptic world? <laughs> Look, it is, Andrew, and it's one of the reasons that I was really keen to take on the topics and the issues that I did in this novel um, because particularly with something as big as climate change, unfortunately it tends to be dealt with too often, I think, in a dystopian context. And I'm guilty of that myself because it was very much a part of the Winter Trilogy that I wrote prior to If Not Us. So I was determined to bring it into a contemporary context and to kind of turn this town, if you like, into a microcosm of of the world um, and of what's going on in the world around things like climate. So... Uh, so that was the that was the reasoning behind it. But yeah, it was great to be able to put the dystopian stuff behind me, and to actually deal with things that we can see happening every day right now. Um, and of course, it 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 looks like it's the right book in the right place at the right time because 
Mm. Climate is huge at the moment with the Glasgow conference happening. Yeah, we. I mean, we are speaking sort of on the tail end of that conference where, I mean, I think I saw, um, I think I saw figures come out or, or like a poll come out that Australia had ended up rating, I think about 64th out of 64. We were last in however many uh, countries were, were in this table of our climate action, what we were actually planning to do. And we're really going to get into that, I think, in the in the conversation. But I want to I want to maybe take you back. I confessed off air that I had a few minutes and I had to rewrite this literally at the last minute because I saw an Insta photo uh, on your Instagram from 1983. Thoroughly recommend people check this out of a young Mark Smith at a blockade of the Olympic U- Dam uranium mine. Now, if if not us, already felt like a personal story as I was reading it. But can you talk a little bit about where it came from? Yeah, look, I have been an activist for as long as I can remember. Uh, I remember coming back from overseas in 1983 and I was really jealous of two of my brothers who had spent the summer down in Tasmania at the Franklin Dam blockade Mm. Uh, and they were arrested. They were in Risdon Jail. They had all the kudos of, uh, you know, having been uh, frontline activists. So that was sort of an awakening for me. Plus, I've been travelling through Europe and Asia immediately prior to that. So I was getting a really good view about what was happening in the world and and seeing, you know, the environmental effects, environmental effects of tourism that I was very much a part of as well. So I came back here and uh, I had a number of opportunities through that period. It was a time of great activism in Australia. It was a time when it was virtually nothing to have 100,000 people out on the streets in a rally, you know, whether that be Palm Sunday rally um, or uh, Hiroshima Day rallies or for, you know, once in the early 90s, once the Iraq war began, then it was a, it was a real time. It was like there's this incredible mood for change and it was expressed by people being out on the streets. I think a lot of that has changed with we mentioned social media before, but with the advent of social media, campaigning has changed enormously as well. And I remember I would I became an organiser and a lot of my early writing was actually writing press releases for environmental organisations and I was a fierce letter to the editor writer, you know. But in when you're organising rallies and, and actions in, in that time, you would have to wait until the next day to see whether you got on page one, page two, page ten of the newspaper, you know, to find out how successful how successful your your protest had been. Now it's happening instantaneously, and we're getting live feeds from rallies, and so it changes the nature of the whole thing. I really want to um I really want us to get more to social media, but first of all, I want to even just break it down a little bit more because there's a word you used there that I think it'd be worth worth delving into. In so many different mouths, activist means different things. You explore that in If Not Us, but what does being an activist mean to you? To me, being an activist is simply taking a role in your community and taking a responsibility for your community. So whatever's happening within your, I'm very much of that, um, a mindset to you know to to think globally and act locally. We can all do something to impact uh, the community that we live in. So for me, that's what activism is, and it's not always 
environmental activism, it's social activism as well. It's welcoming, for instance, refugees into your community. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's taking a role. It's being involved. And I'm a great believer, and I think this probably rings true with my characters in this book as well, and that is that history is made by the people that turn up. If you don't turn up, you can't expect to influence what's going to be happening around you, whether that means turning up on, on polling day to vote in an election, a local election, a state election, a federal election, or whether it means supporting those people who are, who are taking a stand within your community on issues and things that you actually feel strongly about. I think you've got an obligation to do that. So that's what activism is for me. Now, my my character, my principal character in this book, I would say is a reluctant mm. activist. He become, he gets drawn into this campaign. He would much rather be surfing, much rather be out in the water and enjoying himself, but he gets drawn into the campaign and partially by, I think, by the passion and the activism of his mum. His mum mm. brings him into this campaign. Yeah, so... Um his his mum Imogen is um, she's she's about my age, but Hess and I've I've got the word reluctant here in front of me that you've just used. I've I've called him a reluctant hero, and he wouldn't even he wouldn't take that. He might not say he's not even the focus. He's just a small part. But I am curious because he is your protagonist. Imogen has been doing the hard yards for a lot longer. There are characters with even more experience than her in the book, but Hess is the focal point. And my question, I guess, would be, why him? Why this story? And why now? Why a youthful protagonist? Okay. Part of this story began in 2019, so prior to COVID. And you'd remember that there were the massive school strike for climate. Yeah. I went to the one in Sydney. It was huge. It was huge, yeah. It's like quite frightening to think of us all that that close together now. (laughs) Yeah. I went to the one in Geelong and... I've been, as I said, I've been active in that community for a long time. I've organised rallies in Geelong. It's a very conservative city. It's hard to get people out on the streets. I went along to this rally, the School Strike for Climate, 2019, and it was massive and it was passionate. And I, I, as I, I had to walk through all the back streets of Geelong to get in there and there's kids pouring out of schools, primary schools, secondary schools, they're carrying banners, their teachers are there with them. And so there was this there's this incredible sense of all of these kids walking out of school, walking out of what I see as being their their traditional sort of role. And remember at this time the Prime Minister actually said kids should be in school learning. They shouldn't be out on the streets protesting. But here they were flooding the streets. So, And this rally was run entirely by teenage kids. Mm. It was... In some ways, it was quite shambolic, but it was also beautiful in the in the way that they, they were on top of the issues. Uh, they spoke really well. They had music, and then they marched through the streets, and they made noise. So there was incredible passion there. I actually went home that afternoon, and I began writing, if not us. And I I thought, well, how do I, how do, I do this? Because this is such a massive thing to be writing about. So naturally, as a writer, you think, how do I personalise this? How do I individualise it? And that's where my principal protagonist came from. So from the moment I had this boy, Hess, this 17-year-old boy, flying down the, the, the hill after school with his board on the rack on his bike, heading for the surf, I had my character. And that could have been any one of those kids that was at that rally mm. that, that day in Geelong. 
So that was that was the impetus for it. That's where it kind of took off from. And uh, he is, yes, he is very much a reluctant hero. But I think it's what what I'm very careful about not preaching in writing this book. Um, but what I wanted, I wanted a reluctant hero because I wanted kids who felt disenfranchised, kids who felt angry. That's what I saw at that rally in Geelong. I didn't see kids that were fearful. I saw kids that were angry at being ignored and and angry at their futures being jeopardised by the the policies of politicians at the moment. So that's where my reluctant hero came from because I think that reluctant hero was any one of those kids that were on that street. Mm. And I was trying to embody that in these characters in the small town. I think it's a really interesting tension that you talk about there too because if we consider um, popular fiction, if we consider young adult fiction, it's broadly populated. I mean, look, fiction in general is populated by people doing things. You know, nobody says the traditional narrative arc is we get up in the morning and we sit around a bit and then we go to bed at night. Something has to happen. There has to be a complication and a resolution. And yet for young people, the readers of this fiction – they're usually being told it's not your role. You need to be doing X, Y, and Z until you're old enough to be conservative like us and not want to do any more. Um, and that sounds like the tension that you're you're exploring here. Did, was it? it I mean, you've talked about your history. Was it hard to get yourself into that headspace, or is is there always a part of us that's that kind of? It's still scary to put yourself out there. No, I think regardless of how experienced you are in campaigning or in, or in activism, still standing up and being a spokesperson, being a voice, using your voice is always nerve-wracking regardless. And it just it becomes you do get better at doing it, but it doesn't mean that you are any less exposed. So every time you put yourself out there, you expose yourself. And this is what happens to Hess in the novel. He's exposed to this much wider world. Mm. And I think, you know, you're exactly right in, in what you're saying about the portrayal of kids as being, look, you don't vote, you don't spend enough money, you don't, therefore you can't have an impact. So wait until you're old enough and then you'll understand why we're acting in the way that we are as adults. And... In, in the book as well as what I think in real life, and this brings in my experiences as teaching in schools, is that kids are, are no longer accepting that. They're no longer accepting that, that dynamic that you just need to shut up, be silent until you turn 18 and then you can, you know, you can become involved in things because they've been inspired by who at the time was a 14-year-old girl sitting outside the Swedish parliament holding a single sign. um, So Greta Thunberg began on her own and they've seen that and they've seen here is a a young woman now who's just turned 18 who has millions of followers around the world. She has built this incredible movement from this one single action and that I think has been an inspiration for so many kids. Uh, It doesn't mean that, that everyone can be a Greta but... People can be, they can help out in lots of other ways as well. And any movement needs, movement can't be made up of a thousand leaders. It'd be made up of half a dozen leaders and the rest being supporters and followers. And Greta Thunberg, of course, is a very, a very interesting example because through her, we see someone who has, everything she does 
exists outside of of the narrative that we're told is supposed to exist and all the attacks on her are about how she just she doesn't seem to want to fit into the society that you know has been built and her her retort is usually that's the whole point yeah and i think that that speech that incredible speech that she gave at the at the un about two years ago um you know the how dare you speech that was a really good indication of that i'm sure they were expecting her to be you know, to express a point of view, but she was, she attacked them for what they mm. were doing. Now that, how dare you leave this to us? Um, and that's, that I think, I think it's one of the most incredible speeches I've heard. I actually quoted it at the, at the beginning mm. of the book in the foreword. Now I want to come to an interesting, uh, I guess, addition to the story. Fenna is an exchange student uh, from the Netherlands and she's there she meets Hess very early on, and we can see an indication. Like Hess is Hess is a young surfer kid, and he's he sees this this girl. He's a nice guy, but he's he's instantly attracted to her. But she she's also interesting in that she brings a lot more understanding of environmental dangers. Hess is um, a, a, a veritable neophyte in this area. What did you want by bringing together these very different, but still, uh, I guess working together perspectives through the story? Yeah, I, the first thing that I wanted from Fenner was I wanted a more worldly perspective to come to this town. And so we know that European countries, countries in the EU, EU, Scandinavian countries are much more socially and environmentally progressive than what we are here in Australia. So I wanted her to bring that sensibility and for Hess to be exposed to that sensibility. So, and not just Hess, but the other peripheral characters around him as well. That was principally her role. And I based her on, on two actual, on two girls who came to Australia who are the daughters of friends of ours. And they came to Australia during a gap year. And I used them as, as research to, to build this character of Fenner. And I remember so strongly when they were here and they were just 18 years old at the time, their reflections on things as simple that we were taking for granted, like, uh, like burning wood for, for a fire in your house, you know? Mm. And, and they were basically, wow, you're still, still burning wood? Um, and there's little things like that, all the little things that we uh, have not been as cognizant of here that when she comes, she brings that understanding with her. And that was principally her role. And obviously it sets up this incredible, it was such a good, such an interesting relationship to write about. Um, kids from different sides of the world, from with different perspectives, but with something that links them. And that was their concern about what was going on around them. It's just that they were approaching it from very different perspectives. And I wanted that. I really wanted one to be informing the other. I just want to also make a nod in, in terms of your characters overall and a nod to you as a writer, you seem to be having fun with some of the naming and um, even the names that are maybe not as, as Dickensian in their overt signalling just seem to suit the characters very well. I'm thinking specifically of the climate change sceptic who only appears very briefly. I think his name's Adrian Nutt. Um, what importance does naming play for you in signalling characters? <laughs> It's, I think that I've always come from the perspective that I like 
a character's name to tell, to inform the character in some way or to be a reflection of the character. And I think there's a couple of examples of that in my previous novels where the principal protagonist in the trilogy, his name was Finn. Now, Finn is a surfer. He's got this intimate association with the ocean. He lives out of the ocean by diving off the reef for abalone and crayfish. And Finn just seemed to be a name that fitted and added some context to the character. Similar with Ramage, who was the, the arch-villain throughout the whole trilogy. And Ramage is a really hard-sounding name for a hard character. So I took two, uh, two words, Rampage and Damage, smashed them together and came up with Ramage. Well, so, I, I always heard Ravage in there as well. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, that, um, it's and I think it's... It's something I, because I run a lot of writing workshops with young writers as well, and I always think don't just call your character Neville or or Tony, you know. Think about a name that you think suits that character and brings some added meaning to the character. In the case of Hess, it's something that he's had to explain since he was at primary school because it was his mum's idea because Herman Hess was a, a, um, was a writer that she was into, you know, back in the day, he says. So he has to live with the consequences of that by explaining his name every time he meets someone. What even is a Steppenwolf? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I just, that was just, I had to note that because I, I loved the names and I love, I love exactly what you've just described. It, there's something about that signalling and, of, of course, that signalling is something that as people every day we have to kind of balance. You know, how does an immediate impression balance against getting to know someone deeper? But in a book, it is so valuable. And of course, your books are, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say they're, uh, they're Moorish. Mm-hmm. They're not, we're not, we're not talking about doorstop, um, doorstop type tomes. And I always get to the end wishing they were a few, few extra hundred pages of the story. But let's, let's for now zoom in to small towns. Too often, these are the places that feel the impact of climate change on all levels of society. And it's easy to paint climate change deniers as unreformable enemies. But you show us a town full of people who, on the one hand, are scared that they're going to lose their livelihoods. Um, Hadron is is the major employer in the town of Shelbourne. While on the other, these are the people who will feel the immediate effects. There, I mean, in a in a memorable speech, Hess goes street by street and talks about whose houses are going to be underwater. What what was involved for you in putting this nuance into the discussion? I don't think you can afford to, when you're dealing with an issue like this, you can't afford to just ignore the other side. And I really wanted to strongly make the point that that there is significant change that takes place in this town, as is there a need for systemic change to take place in our society, and that will hurt people. You cannot have that kind of systemic change without people getting hurt, without people losing their jobs or needing to retrain. And it's easy so it's easy for me as a writer to say, oh, look, coal miners, they need to retrain to do something else, you know. Um, but they are human beings and they are people who need to put food onto the table for their families. And I, you can't afford to ignore that because there are human costs. They're not just economic costs and environmental costs and social costs. There are human costs to these people on an everyday basis. So um, I, I did that through, um, you know, the town is 
the town is made up of of people whose whose parents, because it's mostly it's mostly the kids that we're dealing with, but their parents are employed by Hadron, but they all catch the same bus together to school in the morning. And they all have to sit with each other, and there are the the kids whose parents are involved with the environmental side of things and trying to shut the coal mine down, and then there are the coal miners' kids on the same bus. And that dynamic is something that I wanted to reflect because, like I said, I'm trying to bring, in the small town thing, we're trying to bring the world into microcosm. Mm. And in order to do that, you, you have to paint the other side. It's just it's, you can't ignore it and it becomes way too didactic if you, if you do ignore it. So you've got to bring it in and you've got to humanise that element of change and the impact of that change. And for you as a writer dealing, I guess, ultimately with the open-endedness of it, I mean, this is a book with a very strong third act, but it was never going to be a third act um, and they all lived happily ever after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think it's really important that you, don't, uh, that you don't tie things off too neatly because the long-term consequences of something like this for a town that, like Shelbourne that I'm talking about, those consequences will be felt for years. They're not going to be neatly tied off in a couple of months if the power station closes. It's going to be to have these long-term effects. And one of the things I was really keen to do was to demonstrate the way in which large corporations like that ingratiate themselves to small towns mm. and they generate what we call their social licence to operate by feeding money into the sports clubs, the men's shed, the community house, all of those sort of things that are the lifeblood of the community and it's, it's so that it becomes people don't question when, you know, the kids are pulling on their brand-new footy jumpers for the under-14s and here's the Hadron logo mm. on the footy jumper. And parents and kids don't question that. It's just part of their town. But you rip that away, you take that away, you take that support away, what happens to the footy club, the netball club, the bowls club, the men's shed, um, it's going to have ramifications right across that community. So I was very keen to demonstrate that. I've actually lived for a long time in a community where this was very much a part of the culture of the town. And believe that the town hasn't collapsed when the change happened here and those organisations just simply have to find money elsewhere to support themselves. It's an interesting thing to consider. You made the note at the very top of this conversation that we're speaking on the tail end of, of COP26 um, in a huge climate change discussion where we've and the end of a month where we've heard so much about where we as a country and, and our government sit and the the conversation about social responsibility and I'm hearing a lot about how nobody's going to tell anyone what to do and individuals can make choices but what is very absent in that is is where that social cohesion is going to come come from where it seems like we are we are a country of 25-plus million individuals rather than a society. Yeah, and look, I think that's been something that's been a significant change in countries like Australia over the last 20, 25 years, where we have, there has been a focus on the individual, individual rights, my right to do this, my right to do that. And I think we saw that, we saw that happen demonstrably in the US during Trump's reign of four years which became entirely about the individual. Now, one of the problems then, you know, that sort of individualism is fine until there is a collective response that's needed. Mm. 
And we saw that with uh, the response of different countries to, to COVID. So those countries that relied on social cohesion, and I think I've travelled quite a bit in Japan, I think Japan is a really good indicator of that, where it is the, the society comes first, the individual comes second. So your individual rights are subjugated to the, the rights of the community. And so they were, in their own way, able to deal with COVID in a much different way to countries like the US, as an example, where that sort of rampant individualism has been bred into them to the point where I'm only responsible for myself, I'm not responsible for anybody else. When we, when we look at, bring that into the, the, with, with the issue of climate change, we all need to take an individual role, but that individual role needs to be organised at a societal level and it needs to come, you know, this idea that the government is saying at the moment that this will be done by corporations, the change will happen through industry, corporations, through research and through individuals, and that's all fine, but if there's no legis legislative framework at that government level to hold all that in place and to drive it, um, then it's only going to be, it's going to be a piecemeal response rather than the, the cohesive response that we need. That's it for this great conversation with Mark Smith. Mark's new novel is If Not Us, out now from text. Now, you might have noticed at the end there, the conversation cut short. This was part one of my conversation with Mark. I've cut it down for ease of listening and also because part two is going to contain some minor spoilers. So it's going to be out tomorrow. Keep your eye out and tune in, especially if you've read If Not Us, to discover a little bit more about the story. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser Get in touch. Let's have a chat about what you're reading. It is always fun. It's always best when books are shared. And if you subscribe in your podcast app, there's a new Great Conversation every week and a little bonus midweek. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back tomorrow with another episode of Great Conversations, part two of our conversation with Mark Smith. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.